Welcome to Not For The Average. This is your host, Trent Leishan. Humans are incredibly cunning and clever creatures, aren't we? And of course, we've all met people over the journey who are devastatingly influential and some that are equally deceptive. As salespeople or leaders, we have to be skilled at reading people, assess, be able to understand who we can trust in order to make smarter and better decisions. In this podcast, I'm going to be interviewing Steve Van Apron, who is one of the world's leading authorities on analyzing human behavior. He's an expert in the field of behavioral interviewing, reading body language, and detecting deception. Steve has received extensive training from the world's leading international investigative authorities, such as LAPD, FBI, and the US Secret Service, in how and why people deceive. CNN have referred to him as the human lie detector. And in this episode, we're going to explore why people lie, how do we know when someone is lying to us, and what makes a successful negotiator. And more. You're going to love this. Here we go. G'day, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Great to be here. And how are you? I'm good. Just uh, overcoming this uh, COVID crisis at the moment, but uh, a few changes in uh, business and uh, you know dealing with people and all that type of thing. But uh, uh, I think we're all coping considering the circumstances. Steve, you are known as the human lie detector. How did you acquire that title? Well, a little bit about my background. I spent 14 years in uh, South Australian Victoria Police and a journalist did a, a story on me a number of years ago. And um, I was actually getting this journalist to tell lies and tell the truth. And I was picking apart the story. And when the story went to, um, to print and later on to air, um, he called me the human lie detector. And with the media, the name stuck ever since. So, I mean, it, it's a little bit annoying, but it's great for branding. What do you do for work and what type of organisations do you work with? So um, I train everybody from um, corporations to intelligence agencies, homicide detectives. So it, 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 it's broken down in a number of parts. One is communication skills in how to read people, how to um, read body language and look for deviations from a person's normative behaviour and how to analyse the content and structure of what people are saying. See, people often won't lie to you. They'll just edit the information they supply you with. So I think good negotiators, good salespeople are good at reading their customers, their clients and uh, you know, service providers and so on. So it's having the innate ability to understand the psychology of what makes people do what they do and why they do it, but also being a good interviewer. So asking good, direct, clear, concise, probing questions. I guess that's almost a form of superpower. <laughs> Um, a little bit about how you got to this point. Sure. I'd spent 14 years in South Australian Victoria Police and I was always interested in psychological profiling, what made serial killers and serial sex offenders tick. So my, back then, this was before Silence of the Lambs and all that type of thing. So <laughs> I, just, I always had a, d a desire to go over to the uh, Behavioural Sciences Unit of the FBI. So I was lucky enough to go over there. But when I got there, the more I learned about profiling, the more interested I became in cognitive and behavioural interviewing. I wanted to know why some of the detectives I worked with were terrible at reading people or detecting when people were deceiving them and others were okay. So while I was over there, they said, do you use polygraph testing in your police department? I said, oh, not really. It's very American, very Canadian. They said, why don't you train with us and you can take the technology back? 
So I initially trained at Western Oregon University. I did my internship with LAPD, Robbery Homicide Division, Scientific Investigation Division, Polygraph Unit. Uh, also spent some time with the FBI field office in uh, LA. Back then it was more counterintelligence uh, type uh, work. Um, and then I spent some time with um, US Secret Service, LA County Sheriffs, and a number of other law, uh, law enforcement bodies. Come back, and I was interviewing somebody one day for um, a number of sexual assaults on uh, a child. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to have the skill sets to work out when people are lying to you without relying on technology? And it just, I made it my lifelong uh, ambition to uh, immerse myself and having trained with behavioural sciences unit um, and having seen and having done thousands of interviews myself for all sorts of things from homicides to um, you know allegations of uh, child sexual abuse and so on i started seeing patterns in behavior i started seeing uh, how people would not lie but edit the information they supplied you with so then i started noticing that truthful people take ownership whereas deceptive people create distance disassociation and separation in their language and then i started mm. studying uh, homicide uh, tapes uh, where people would appeal in front of the media for the return of their loved ones uh, but I've listened to how they use pronouns. Uh, I've listened to how they would create that distancing language. I've looked for micro expressions, distress signals, hand to face, masking, concealment and blocking behaviours. And it just grew from there. And one of my very first clients um, was uh, Department of Defence um, uh, intelligence agencies. And then I started training their people and it just sort of grew from there. And then I started doing public speaking and that's how I got into it initially. That obviously, the, you know, we watch these crime shows on TV. There's a, they've been around for years. It's, there's a dark element to your profession, isn't there? Yeah, I think it, it, it's never ceased to amaze me what one human being will do to another. And having spent 14 years, I thought I'd seen everything that uh, humans would do to each other until I went over and um, uh, met people from the Behavioural Sciences Unit. And I remember back then, Mary Ellen O'Toole used to be in charge of the profiling unit. And I, I remember really well, she once said to me, one of her pet hates when agents, FBI agents or homicide investigators interview clinically diagnosed psychopaths would be, they would ask questions like this. If you don't want to help us solve this crime, think of the pain and the suffering and the anguish the victim's families have gone through. Now, the problem with that is a psychopath by definition is somebody who is recklessly indifferent to the physical, emotional harm they cause their victims. They simply don't care. They have no uh, remorse and they have no empathy. So why would you even appeal to an emotion that simply didn't exist? And then I had a light bulb moment. I thought, well, isn't that pretty much the same in everyday negotiations and sales and appealing to emotions. Mm, yeah. mm. The best way to make somebody act or make somebody to do something is to make them want to do it. Mm. So I've always been interested in the psychology uh, behind uh, motivation and drive. The question I want to know is why, why do people lie? Well, we lie for a myriad of reasons. We lie to impress, we lie to get ahead, we lie to save face, we lie to uh, attract a potential partner, we lie to make ourselves look better than we actually are. But there are different types of lies. They're, they're probably pro-social lies where they're, they're, they're small. But then you've got the other end of the spectrum with where having worked on 81 homicide cases, I see the other end of that. So, of course, uh, people there will be lying to avoid apprehension for their involvement or their crime, whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, in fact, we are conditioned to lie. In fact, we know that if we don't have, if, if a child doesn't have the ability to uh, deceive, 
then they will be taken advantage of at a later stage in life. So it's part of the, the process and, and children deceive just as well as adults. But we know through research, the more educated the person is, the more believable and credible they sound. However, my argument to that is there will always be telltale signs or what I call leakage or seepage. The problem is we don't look for it or we don't ask the right questions. And I, I remember um, I was, uh, we had a case here, I'm based in Victoria, we had a case a number of years ago, it was the murder of uh, Jaden Lesky. Um, and the babysitter's name was uh, Greg Savage down at Moe. And um, I remember 60 Minutes said, Steve, can we get you to interview and conduct a polygraph test on Greg Domasevich, the, the suspect? And he said, can you ask him, does he know for certain where Jaden's body is? And I said, that's a terrible question. He said, why? Surely if he killed him, he would know where his body is. I said, not necessarily. What if he had an accomplice and the accomplice disposed of the body? Or what if he threw the body off a bridge and it's 20 kilometres down the river? He may legitimately not know. So if your questions are not clear and concise in any type of interview, it allows a deceptive person what I call wriggle room. And in any interview, any negotiation, good interviewers not need, not only have to ask the right questions, but they have to be excellent at observation skills. Because if I'm interviewing somebody, I don't care how well prepared they are, they cannot possibly pre-anticipate every question that I'm likely to ask. So if I'm interviewing you for a homicide and we know the uh, time of death uh, of the uh, deceased or victim was 7.15pm last night, I'm going to ask you questions about what you did from, say, 4 to 10. So you might say, I went out. Where did you I was go? definitely in bed. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but let's just say you said you went out to a restaurant. I'd say, okay, uh, what time did you leave home? What route did you take? What time did you arrive? Who did you go there with? Uh, when you walked into the restaurant, have you been there before? That's an important question. What was on the menu? Describe the layout. Describe your waiter. How did you pay? What did you order? What time did you leave? Now, that takes a lot of cognitive processing if you're fabricating or embellishing as you go. And don't forget, for every one lie a person tells, they have to invent two or three to protect themselves from the first one. So they've got to have a great memory. Yeah, so that compounds. That, that compounds, doesn't it? Absolutely. And they don't want to contradict what they've previously said. So observation skills... It, uh, a paramount. Just taking it back a little bit, you said there, Steve, that was a good question, which was the have you been there before? What made that a great question? The reason that's a good question is because let's just say the person has been there before in the past. So historically, they can draw on memory through past occasions, but that night or last night, you may not have been there. So you'll be able to tell me about the layout because you've been there. So if you say, I drove, uh, and I, one of the questions you noticed, I said, what route did you take? Well, if I was going to investigate, I would then check toll, gantry, um, um, you know, um, uh, uh, readouts. I would, um, you know, let's say you pay credit card, I would then check with the bank. and, and all. So really what I'm trying mm. to do is I'm trying to see two things. One is whether your story makes sense, and two is... I am watching you like an eagle hawk. I'm looking for micro expressions. I'm watching distress signals, hand-to-face masking, concealment, blocking behaviours, pupil dilation, all sorts of uh, physiological changes which we believe when a person feels uncomfortable and the question becomes the threatening stimulus and they're evasive, omissive, dismissive, sidestep the issue, don't answer the question and all these other mm. behaviours are happening, well, then that's important for me to know. The forensic process that you're going through in conjunction with asking those questions and all your expertise and IP and the cues and the things that you're cross-referencing. You know, day-to-day -day interaction, perhaps, you know, whether we're talking to somebody in our team member or we're talking to a customer, 
whether we're buying or selling, we don't have that, I guess, those structures around us. So what are some of the basic rules or, I guess, guides to tell if someone's lying to us? Okay. So the first thing that the FBI teach their agents is how to benchmark behaviours and then look for deviations from that normative behaviour. So uh, let's just say, and I'll, and I'll use it now on you. So I'll, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, should I be worried? Uh, no, no, just, just be, so let's, let me ask you, um, tell me, Trent, what was the very first job you had? Roof tiling. Okay. And what year did you start? That would be hard to say. So can I guess? Approximately. approximately. Would have been on holidays, maybe 10 or 11, 80, 84, 85. Okay. And do you remember the name of your boss? Yes. What was it? His name was Derek and he's my father. Okay, well, that's easy. Um, what was the registration number of your very first car? Couldn't tell you. All right, I've got enough information now. And let me tell you what just happened. Three or four times I asked you historical questions where I knew you had to dig into the back of your mind to recall a historical event. Three of those times you looked down and to your right. And why is that important, you might ask? Well, it's extremely important. Let me explain why. I now know that when you're cognitively recalling historical events through sensory input or memory, that in your case, you look down to your eye. Now, how many times have you heard people say, oh, he looked away, he must be lying? Mm. Well, I just proved to you two things. One is you looked away down to your eye even before you started answering those questions. So loss of eye contact is not indicative of deception or withholding, but also of neurological record. Now, how is me knowing that important in future dealings with you? Well, let's just say I'm asking you other questions. So you don't realise this now, but I benchmark that behaviour. Now I'm going to look for deviations from that normative behaviour. So I might ask you questions, whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden you start accessing the creative side of your brain because you're making it up you're embellishing, well, then about 70% of the time, you probably look in the opposite direction. Now, that's important for me to know because I'm benchmarked. So that's the first thing I look for. The second thing I look for, and, and I, I divide it into four categories, verbal, nonverbal, paralinguistics, and content and structure. So let's talk about verbal. I can lie with words, but my body language is much more overt. Okay, so sometimes uh, I look for conflict or contradiction between what a person is saying and what their body language is in fact stating. With the uh, verbal uh, content, also remember that if I'm lying to you, I want to sound believable and credible. And usually deceptive people will leave themselves out of the narrative, especially when they're making it up. The third area, paralinguistic, relates to tone, pitch, the fourth area is what, a third area, sorry, is what we call paralinguistics. Um, so it relates to tone, pitch, voice modulation and response latency. So observation skills are really important because around about 12 times since you and I have been talking, you engage in typical evaluation gestures. What's an evaluation gesture? Well, when you were recalling that information, I could tell it was truthful. Why? Because your behaviour didn't deviate. Secondly, the evaluation gesture might be something like, you know, at, you know hand to chin, head slightly cocked. Now, what's important is the context in which it occurs. If I asked you and then all of a sudden you said, I went down to the street or, and your hand is blocking your mouth, that's different. Deviation. 
It's a deviation, absolutely. So what we believe and what behavioural scientists believe is that when we lie, it creates anxiety. But once again, that's dependent upon whether or not you're clinically diagnosed as a psychopath but, or sociopath. <laughs> Shouldn't, but, be laughing. Shouldn't be laughing, sorry. But if we're lying, we know what we're saying is factually incorrect, our brain subconsciously realises that the words that are falling out of our mouth may be uh, you know, false. So subconsciously, we don't even realise we're doing it. Our hand will go towards our mouth. However, at the last moment, you'll see some sort of change or deviation. So it could be ear touching, nose touching, uh, eye rubbing, which is indicative of prolonged eye closure, which is avoidance. So holistically, we need to look for groups and clusters of behaviour, and we need to see whether they're consistent with the spoken word. The fourth area is... Um, how we use or don't use language. I've often said two things. There's no such thing as a bad interviewee, but there's definitely such a thing as a bad interviewer because they don't ask the right questions. The second part of that is when a, uh, a person, and, I, and I'll give you a couple examples of where I've been involved in homicide cases where it's quite obvious. Um, I was asked to uh, participate in a, a show called The Sunday Night Program. And they had a number of people who uh, went fronting the media uh, appealing for the return of their loved ones. Now, one of them was the uh, disappearance of Kayesha Abrams, a, a young girl, very pretty girl. And her mother, biological mother, and de facto boyfriend fronted the media. And I was watching it. And at one stage, the de facto boyfriend says, she was such a wonderful little girl. Was is past tense. If you ever speak to a parent mm. of their child mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. will never ever talk in singular person past tense. Why? Because the anticipation, expectation or hope Possibly. is that their child will be returned to life safe and well. They'll never ever give up. Um, and then uh, when not just said was such a wonderful child, he then said, we really loved that girl. Loved is past tense. And this right. was before they found her body and eventually right. the, they were charged. So. I look at, A, whether the person's taking ownership, and I do this in business or, you know, um, in general, uh, or if they're creating that disassociation or separation in language, or more importantly, they're excluding themselves out of the narrative, which is very important. The awareness and the attention to detail in the observation that you're referring to there is being able to read people, you mm -hmm. know, and all the nuances that you're looking for and the variations and all these things that, um, you know, when you think about from a sales perspective, you know, one of the big stigmas attached to selling is the is this you know misleading or deceptive or you know you, you um, the images conjured up are you're your sleazy car yard salesman door-to-door -door vacuum salesman there's this negative stigma attached to selling what's also fascinating from my perspective is when you we talk about negotiations which you want to touch on in a sec and and asking for the business and working through objections in our travels with the thousands of salespeople that we've worked with over the journey the number one reason Salespeople don't ask for the business or push through objections is actually fear of being a salesperson. Absolutely, 100%. And fear is one of the strongest motivational driving factors. In fact, um, and the example, I do a lot of public speaking, and the example I like to use, a, a good friend of mine and I went out one night and um, he sees a single, he sees an attractive girl, and I said, um, go up and say hello. And he said, oh, she wouldn't be interested. I said, well, how do you know? You haven't gone up and said hello. And he said, oh, no, no, she definitely wouldn't be interested. So right there, he's more fearful of failure than the reward of success. 
So, of course, fear drives our behaviour. So uh, if you think uh, you're not an effective uh, salesperson, well, you'll start believing it and your behaviour will start reflecting that. You're saying fear of being a salesperson is actually fear of failure. Rejection, a fear of failure. Correct. Sometimes it's more a fear of I don't want to be perceived as pushy and that is where the fear of being... That's a very easy issue to overcome. And, and, you know, uh, the example I like to use... Um, many years ago, I was going out with a, a, a girl and she rings me up and she says, Steve, we're going to Hamilton's, Porsche Hamilton's, and I'm buying my Porsche today. She's really excited and whatnot. And I said, sure. So we get in the car, we drive down there. We walk in and, she, and Lynn's with me and um, we go, the salesman comes up and who do you think the salesman approaches first? You. Me. And I said, well, Lynn's actually looking to buy a, a new Porsche. She looked, uh, sorry, the, the, the salesman looked at Lynn, gave her the one side, then looked back at me. Right there, right there, he sabotaged the sale. He didn't know it then. So he goes away and she leans over to me. She says, I'm buying a Porsche today, but not from him. Yeah, of course, as humans, we all have fear of rejection. And that, that's what interests me, the, the, the psychology of behaviour. Um, so then we have other people who hate cold calling. They're so fearful of being rejected, yet there are other people that don't even think twice about it. So what is it in their psyche, what is it in their behaviour that can uh, push aside rejection and allow them to do the job? I mean, most people in business that I've met have had failures, but they have an innate ability to overcome that failure. And they have, uh, you know, they don't listen. And just recently I was on a, a television show and they asked me, to help uh, budding comedians get up on stage and overcome their fear. The two biggest fears people have are death and public speaking in front of a crowd. And um, there was one guy there, he was hilarious, but as soon as he got on stage, couldn't communicate. He just lost it. So the fear was, and he said to me, so I hypnotised him to overcome that fear, but that's another issue. Um, (laughs) That's a whole other conversation, hypnosis. But... um, the problem was he said, I'm not funny. I said, you're hilarious. He goes, no, 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 I'm not funny. So his fear was stopping him from getting up there and performing. But once after the rapid in, uh, induction hypnosis, that fear was no longer a barrier or a hurdle. And he got up there on stage and blitzed. It was amazing. Even the producers couldn't believe the change in personality. So we condition ourselves. We can, our behaviour is conditioned by external influences, internal environment, uh, motivation, uh, fear, rejection, all of it. Um, that change in confidence from knowing he can do it. You know, we're so crippled by fears of, and that a lot of these fears are not real, which, which is really um, interesting psychology. How to hypnotise your customers. That might be a name of a potential book. I think that would be a bestseller if it's not already. That's, uh, I'll put that on the list, how to hypnotise your customers. We want to talk about that, but not in today's forum, hypnosis. Now, we want to talk about negotiations because, you know, reading people, being influential, understanding how to profile, being successful, which is essentially the art of, in ways, influence. What, what, is, what is the art of influence? You know, so is it leading people? Is it um, getting people to trust you? It's the one thing we haven't really touched on here is, is what makes um, somebody influential. Before we get there, what makes somebody a great negotiator? Because it seems to be um, in business, we're always talking about conversion. 
we're talking about uh, winning business. We're talking getting deals over the line. They could be big multi hundred million dollar um, development projects, or it could be more transactional. But the ability to negotiate and get people to an outcome. What makes somebody a really successful negotiator? I think what makes people, what makes a person a good negotiator, is multi-dimensional, and that is firstly the ability to build rapport. Number one, to build that 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 communication, build that relationship. I mean, when I, and I'm just going back to my old police role when I was a detective, when I interview somebody, I want them to like me. I want them to take me into their confidence. Doesn't that activate fear if you're trying too hard to be liked? I'm not saying you're doing that, but this is the trap, isn't it? You, you can tell, you know, the natural profiling instincts for most people can tell when somebody's trying too hard to be liked instinctively absolutely. absolutely and it comes across it's like it's like trying to mock sincerity people can see it a mile away um so the first thing is that and once again that comes back to confidence that comes back to your ability to have confidence and how often have you been somewhere and you go to buy something and the salesperson doesn't have confidence or um really doesn't care in that role or just marking time until the next drop comes along we pick that up really quickly so then as humans, we expect service. We expect good customer service, but also quality communication. So the, the rapport building, and people don't realise this, that if I, let's just say, um, I was to look through your office, right? I would see a number of things. So let's just say you've got a picture, this is what I do. You've got a picture of you holding a big trout. What's that tell me? You're a fisherman. Uh, let's just say you've got a picture of standing on the 18th hole at St Andrews Beach. That tells me you're a golfer. So how can I use that to build and establish rapport? Well, in uh, some of the practice I do in some of my rapport building and um, you know, reading body language classes is I'll get somebody up there and I'll say, okay, I want you to build rapport with me. Now, automatically, most men assume sport is the number one rapport builder. So we'll talk about sports. So what I'll do deliberately is somebody will say, do you follow, and I do follow football, but they'll say, do you follow the footy? I go, no. And then they go, oh, 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 it doesn't follow football. Uh, I've got to find something else that we can communicate. We can, we can uh, you know, establish, we can communicate on them. We can build a base from. And then they'll say, um, well, do you like any sport? And I go, no. And I'll deliberately, impregnate pauses to make them feel even more uncomfortable. So the question should be something like, and you throw it over to them. So what do you do for entertainment? Or do you have any sports? Do you play any sport? Do you have any hobbies? What do you do on a weekend? So we know through the psychology, the more yeses, the more communication people that have, the more bonding we have, the more rapport we build, the more likely we are to open up that prospect. Mm. And as a result of that, and, and it's got to be sincere and genuine. But we also, the second part after, uh, after rapport is we have to be good listeners. You know, I, I um, people don't realise I do this, but when I go into meetings, uh, I'll take notes. And sometimes it's amazing what people tell you. But half the time we don't pay any attention whatsoever. So I'll make notes and then I'll fastidiously write them down. And, you know, six months down the track or, you know, eight months, sometimes 12 months down the track, I'll send an email to one of my clients, say, uh, happy birthday. And it freaks them out. And where I got that from, believe it or not, was Bert Newton. Uh, I, Bert Newton interviewed me once. About three years later, 
He interviewed me again and he recalled things that blew me away. But I started thinking, well, he, he really took the time out to learn. He really took the, the time out to get to know me. And this is the problem I see. I remember um, I, was, I, I do a lot of international travel. I remember watching a Texan speak to a Japanese businessman. Now, Japanese are very proud of their, their background, their qualifications, even the way they present themselves, you know, they present business cards and bow and whatnot. And this Texan took the card, said, thank you very much, and started writing on the back of the, the card. Now, what he didn't see was the offence that he caused. So he's recklessly oblivious to it. I remember just off to a side, I was asked to speak at the Harvard Club in New York City, one of the most prestigious uh, clubs. And I remember when I went there, the organiser said, Steve, you better be good. He said, we have uh, uh, presidents, serving presidents, ex-presidents come here and talk. These members who some of the biggest CEOs in America have heard it all. And I thought, I didn't say anything. I thought, yeah, no problem. And uh, he's going on, really building it up and build, building it up. And we're just having a bit of a, a chat. And what I was doing, I was listening to him. And so just by listening to him, I thought these guys want something totally different. They don't want to be preached to. But the other important thing is not all, in a negotiation, not always do the talking. Some of the most effective negotiators I've ever seen sit back, very calm, very casual, very good at observation, listening, taking notes. Um, but anyway, um, one of the um, participants in my presentation was madly writing notes. Incredible. Like, and, and I could see him from stage, writing note after note after note, and which I thought was quite interesting. Anyway, as it turned out, later on, they had like a, a, a team building exercise and I, I was allocated to that particular group. So I was sitting right next to that guy. And later on, um, one of the uh, organisers said, um, oh, you probably don't know. But Chuck just sold his business for $886 million. Now, here's a guy who's very wealthy, very successful, but writing copious quantities of notes. So he still has the ability to want to learn. Um, and I think we never mm. ever stop learning. That can mm. make you a more effective communicator or negotiator. Um, seek first to understand. It's uh, what makes someone a good negotiator is their ability to understand. Absolutely. And, of course... And, and as silly as this sounds, but it, crucial as it is, is what do I want from that negotiation? What is, you know, it's amazing. Sometimes mm. people will go in there and they're, they're not prepared. They don't know what they want. Prepared. Or what will happen is um, they, it's, it's like a fishing expedition, right? So they're, they're actually just sizing things out just to see what mm. is happening in that room. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, it's funny because... Uh, um, I was on a, a show, another show, and it was called The Poker Star. And it was hosted by Joe Hashem, who was the... Uh, yes, we remember Joe. Yeah, 2005 World, World Poker Champion. I think he won about 12 million US in uh, a poker match. Anyway, he said, I don't have any tells. I don't think I have any tells. I said, yes, you do. I watched him play because I don't play poker, which is even better. But he said, what tells? I said, well, when you, get, when you have good cards subconsciously, you actually move closer to them. When you have bad cards, you actually create distance. Mm, mm, deception. Is you actually put yeah. your hands around, the, which is a protection mechanism, like my mind, get away. Um, yeah. And yeah. then I'll look for, and, and this is what I teach negotiators, to look for high and low confidence gestures. Now, that's really important. And uh, the reason that's important is because 
if I'm negotiating and I'm, I throw it over to the other end of the table and they're exhibiting low confidence gestures, then that's a red flag for me. So we need to look for those confidence gestures. So we, we either class them in two categories, uh, high or low, positive or negative. High confidence gesture? You're talking about yeah. distancing is you're either being deceptive or you're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable yeah, with that, the... that. That's one area. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you a, a, a couple high confidence gestures. Steepling. Research shows what I'm doing now. Research shows the higher the steeple, the more confident the personality. So that's a high confidence. Yeah. A, a, a low confidence gesture would be something like that, rubbing the back of the neck or what we call a self-pacifying gesture. And I saw this in a negotiation. It was quite amazing. Uh, I could, so to give an example, without giving away too much, um, I was asked to do a presentation to a group of portfolio and fund managers. Now, they have analysts. Now, they go in and interview CEOs and CFOs of companies. Now, of course, the CEO or CFO of a company will give um, a favourable impression of the performance of the company in an effort to attract investment. Now, these researchers have done all their due diligence, their market research, you know, check the, you know, uh, you know, uh, all the you know, uh, corporate governance issues and so on. But who knows better about the performance of the company than the person who's running it? So I was teaching these people how to engage in uh, observations of these confidence gestures. And one of these uh, uh, meetings asked me to come in on, um, what I noticed was the person who was pitching this concept or this idea was engaging in what we call a self-pacifying gesture. And it's very, very slight, but very small, but very important. And that's what I'm doing now. And that is, you probably can't see, just rubbing the back of my hand. And you think about it, what does a, a parent do when a child falls over? What do they do? They, they rub their back. Comfort, and, comfort. You, you'll be fine, you'll be Comforting. fine. It's pacifying. But when, a self, when I say self-pacifying gesture, that's a low confidence uh, gesture. So I'll look for groups and clusters of behaviour together with high and low gestures. Fascinating. There's so much observation to this. What's my body language telling you now, Steve? A couple of things. You're very animated when you talk. So your hands are flying around. Or, and sometimes that can be a little bit distracting. The other thing too is if I'm interviewing you and you go from you know, these uh, you know, extensive hand gestures into what I call lockdown, that's important because that's a deviation from how you normally communicate. But what's more important and what's imperative is to determine when that occurs. So let's just say I'm interviewing you and then all of a sudden I see that change in the behaviour, then that's important. I remember interviewing a guy for a rape. Uh, sorry, there were two. One for allegation of child sexual abuse. We had no forensic, scientific, medical or cooperative evidence. My partner goes in there and this is what he did. He said, "If pointing... If you don't tell us what you did to that kid, we're going to lock you up. You're going to go to jail. Your wife's going to leave you. Your children will have nothing to do with you. You'll probably lose your superannuation. He just gave him a thousand reasons why not to confess, not one reason why he should or could. And then he storms out, bad cop. And I'm sitting there and silence, and this is one of the things I teach in negotiations, silence is golden. We tend to feel the need. We've got to impregnate the conversation with uh, with words, when opposite is often the uh, the truth. But anyway, so this guy looks at me and he says, do you think I did this? And I looked at him and I said, notice the change in my tone? I looked at him and I said, I don't care if you did this. I've got one question and one question only. And he said, what's that? I said, did you mean to hurt it? 
And he, he did this. He didn't say anything. Now I've got a partial admission. Mm. Yeah. He eventually uh, confessed. And the three reasons why people confess to any wrongdoing, one, they like the interviewer, two, to get it off their chest, three, they believe the evidence is so overwhelmingly against them that further resistance is futile. And he rolled over, he made full admissions. And then later on, he said to me, he said, the girl dressed very provocatively. She mm. was eight. Jeez. But that's his rationalisation. So if I'm interviewing somebody, I have to understand their motivation. What is their rationalisation? What is the purpose of the interview? What is it they want to get? What is it I want to get? In our language, that's drivers, understanding people, seeking first to understand, uh, understanding motivations, drivers, and being able to understand first before trying to influence. I will be, in, in that context, I use behavioural analysis questions that the FBI have used, but I adapt them for the corporate world. Steve, we have run out of time. What we'll have to do is get the edit fairies out. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to thank you for your time today and I would love to invite you to come back in because I haven't even got through half our run sheet. <laughs> would, you be, um, would you be interested in coming back? Yeah, happy to. Thanks very much, Steve. Um, and thanks again. And where can we find more about you, Steve? If people want to learn more, uh, book you for a keynote, where can they learn more? Uh, they can go to my website, uh, stevevanapron.com, um, and there's a number of videos of um, different cases, work I did with CNN and so on. Um, so there's a number of videos they can watch and analyse themselves to see how good they are, um, but also to see what type of uh, keynote presentations I do. One, one of the most common is um, why women are better liars and men have no idea. <laughs> um, but also... How to read your client and increase profits is very You're hard. saying we should hire female salespeople? No, we're not saying that, of course. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that. That's a fact. Men and women process information differently. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but it's important to understand in the sales process. Thanks, Steve. And um, I want to thank you for coming on today and look forward to seeing you on the next instalment. My pleasure. Take care. Trent is the Managing Director of Boom Sales, Australia's number one sales training and development company. If you'd like to accelerate your sales growth and profitability, go to boomsales.com.au.